0: Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to VoteVets.org. When
1: I'm in the community and I'm talking about... Um crossing paths with people. First and foremost, you've got to meet folks where they are. And you have to recognize that this is hard work and that those who, um, again, have been disenfranchised. And when you see people that are working so hard to take away something, um, remind them that people don't try to take things away from you that don't have value.
0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions, On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers about choices they confront when failure is not an option. My guest today is Chantel Brown. She is the chairwoman of the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party and recently won a heated Democratic primary in Ohio's 11th Congressional District. That race gained national attention and was seen as an indicator for the direction of the Democratic Party. Chairwoman Brown, welcome to Burn the Boats.
1: Hey, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Chantelle is more than fine. We are friends. So I'm, I'm glad to, I'm glad to be on the show. So thank you so much.
0: Well, Chantelle, it's good to have you. I don't think I really did the primary justice in my intro because it was rough to say the least. I was hmm. rereading an economist article about it, which described it as vicious. And I don't want to rehash all of that bad blood because what I want to get to is this. How do we heal? How do we repair whatever damage was done? The larger question is about how big can the Democratic tent be and what do we need to do to fix it?
1: Well, that is loaded. So listen, <laughs> I took some steps actually today. And, and you know, and I'm a big girl. Politics is uh, is a contact sport, right? But we really have to, in my opinion, come together after a candidate wins um, our party nomination. In our case, I am the Democratic nominee. And I expect and desire and hope that those who perhaps didn't support me, and let's keep in mind, while it came down to two dynamic women, um, it re- there were 11 other people in this race. And so, um, for those folks that didn't see me as their initial choice, I'm humbly, respectfully asking with bold expectations that they join me um, so that we can get some work done. I think what what has to happen in order for that to become a reality is something that I tried to practice during the campaign, which was really focusing on the work, focusing on the issues, putting um, personalities and um, partisan, uh, or I shouldn't say partisan, but labels, if you will, aside. As an elected official, when I am, uh, working for the people and they call and they say, Chantel, how can I get some rental assistance? Or when they ask, when is the next food bank happening? Or can you assist us with how to get a PPP loan? They never ask, are you progressive or moderate? (laughs) Right. And so while those labels, um, some people wear very proudly, the label that I embrace the most, um, most endearing to me is democratic, humble servant. I'm a public servant. I'm a person that works for the people. And so that's really, to me, what it has to be about. And so I took some steps today. As a matter of fact, we had a unity um, breakfast and then a unity lunch to just try to coalesce and bring folks on board and find out what their issues are um, for those that didn't support me and see how we can potentially move forward.
0: Well, you are the Democratic nominee now, headed into the general How do you communicate to those who may have preferred one of the other 10 that the stakes are just too high to sit out the general or to hold a grudge? When we look at the direction of the Republican Party today, is that part of your message in trying to convey just what we're up
1: against? Absolutely. It is definitely a part of the message. Um, A gentleman who has been around the Democratic Party for quite some time, Mr. Tom Longo, he said to me very simply, Chantel, and this was prior to winning, he said, after you win, which I appreciate his prophecy in that, but said, we have to recognize that the biggest challenges we face are in the Republican Party. When we look at the condition of our state and um, how we have come out of four years of insanity, and now we have a little sense of normalcy now, thank God for uh, President Joe Biden and Vice President Harris, who have put civility and decency back into our politics. I am eternally grateful for that. So, so, <sighs> But when we look at what's at stake, I mean, our voting rights are being attacked every day, right? Attacked and um, throughout this country and even here in our own state. When we look at gerrymandering, when we look at how the lines are considering to be redrawn, there, these are all in the hands of Republicans who just aren't playing fair. They are certainly the epitome of if we can't beat you, we will cheat you. And so it is insanity at its highest form and a lot of hypocrisy there too. So I think... I think that we have a prime opportunity as Democrats to show the people who is the party that has stood for uh, working rights, civil rights, voting rights, all the things that have made us the party of the people, if you will. And that, to me, is a sense of urgency that is undeniable, especially we are when we are in times of a pandemic, unprecedented times, dealing with unemployment and, and this virus. So many things that People on the other side of the aisle just seem to dismiss as not a part of our reality, but things that we are feeling here in my backyard um, every day. So, yeah, the urgency is there and we have to recognize a house divided cannot stand. We have to unite so we can overcome the challenges and the very, very many um, egregious uh, laws that are being passed by um, Republicans to make sure that we protect our democracy for the greater good of this country.
0: You referred to that little sense of normalcy that the Joe Biden administration has restored. But do you worry that that might lead to a a sense of complacency, at least among, among Democrats.
1: No, absolutely not. I think what he has restored and is continuing to, and, and, and that normalcy, but also fighting so tirelessly to bring back is uh, bipartisanship, right? And the reason I think that that is important and we share the same value is that right now we have a slim majority and we could really take a, a advantage of that, but how long will that last? right? With the way that the Republicans are playing the game, that majority could easily switch in 2022 if we aren't vigilant, if we aren't active, if we aren't engaged. And so what President Biden has understood and long understood, given his tenure and experience, is that um, sustainability is achieved through that bipartisanship. Now, granted, if you don't have folks that are willing to work collaboratively, that creates what we see, this the gridlock. But I think over time, we can get back to a a place where folks are really putting the people first and not uh, overly concerned with their partisan politics. And I like to believe that um, even though we were in a Democratic primary, because there was such a stark contrast between me and my primary opponent, if you will, and I was very intentional about focusing on those issues, that people want to see more of that. Um, the division, the polarization has become um, less palatable and people are suffering so much that that they want people who are not just uh, so rooted in this all or nothing approach because they recognize all or nothing usually ends up with nothing. So we got to be able to sit at the table. And if it takes making some incremental steps, then I think people are willing to do that because you live to fight another day, right? Right,
0: right. And, and the fight will never be over. Mm-hmm. And I'm all for bipartisanship when there is a party acting in good faith on the Mm -hmm. other side. But I'm just wondering, with the state of today's Republican Party and certain members of the Ohio delegation, I mean, how does one bring oneself to work with them? I mean, you have active seditionists Mm. uh, that you are going to be, you know, sharing a, a plane ride with down to D.C. How do you work with a man like, Jim Jordan, uh, mm-hmm. who has done everything he can to undermine the legitimacy of the Biden election to the point where the Democratic leadership refused to seat him on the January 6th commission for for cause, for good reason. Mm-hmm. How do you work with a guy like that and the the cabal of seditionists around him?
1: Listen. I, let me let me be abundantly clear. I recognize that this work is going to be hard. It's not all kittens, rainbows, and sunshine, right? Um, but I also recognize there's no cure for those who are willfully ignorant and those that just do not want to work towards a better and brighter future for everyone. The beautiful thing, or the thing that at least encourages me encourages me a little bit, is that in Congress there are 435 people, and you need 217 to agree with you to get something passed. So I'll be hyper focused on the 217s. The The name of the game is addition. So, I'm hoping that um, we can get some folks that will hopefully recognize the importance of the great work that, that's being proposed by this administration who's willing to make some investments, once in a lifetime investments to reverse course on decades of uh, deteriorating and declining infrastructure that is much needed. The bridge, the 480 bridge that we that we enjoy, it is not a Republican bridge, it is not a Democratic bridge, it is a bridge that we all need to get from one side of the city to the other. And so because of that, um, you know, we have to make sure that we are putting people in a position to be able to be prosperous and safe. And and that, to me, goes beyond our partisan politics. So for those who are, again, unwilling to... Um, that are so loyal to a man or a party that they are willing to even sacrifice themselves, I recognize that's somebody that I probably won't be able to work with. But I'm hoping that there are many more who share my same value and love and principles as it relates to being a public servant. And hopefully we can we can make find some common ground and get some things done from there.
0: Well, I hope you're right. And I hope there are enough of them. But we're going to talk about the diverging trajectories of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Because at the same time that you won your primary, signaling a path of moderation and hope for bipartisanship, in a nearby congressional district, the full-on MAGA candidate won the Republican nomination In the Ohio 15th, which signaled exactly the opposite trajectory for the Republican Party. Are you paying attention to that yet? I know you've got to (laughs) win the general, and and it's not your job to understand the Ohio 15th and everything that's going on in other districts, but do you worry that something – really sinister is happening within Republican Party politics that is going to make it really tough to bridge the gap once you're in D.C.?
1: I do worry a little bit. I am. Again, I I recognize it all. It isn't. uh, This job is going to be hard. It's going to come with its own set of challenges and that um, you have folks that are seeking to no longer even um, run for office because they, they, I guess, Perhaps maybe he see the writing on their wall, um, i.e. Senator Portman, you know, who, you know, we disagree on a lot. But at the same time, you know, he sees some things happening. Um, and so for me, I know that I believe that there are still some folks out there that are like him that aren't willing and ready to just throw in the towel. But it is um, it's a crazy dichotomy. I mean, you know, for me to be in one race in the the way that the, the turnout was and then to see in 15, you've got such an extreme. Yeah, I'm a little bit concerned. I'm even more so than going to Congress. It concerns me about our state. You know, Ken, it's like, what's going on here? So we got some work to do is really all, all that I see that as is that we've got work to do. I think that there um, have been some missed opportunities that we could really capitalize on um, that we missed out in some of the past elections, like not uh, penetrating some of those uh, parts of the um, state that have been historically solidly red, because I believe that we can make them less red. And I think that that's uh, Senator Sherrod Brown's uh, philosophy, too. And so if we concentrate just on some of our big communities and leave some of those others behind, then they're not hearing a different message and that's all that they know. So we've got to make sure that we're getting our message out so that people potentially can recognize there are some other options. Because I think if you, if they're anything like me, I'll admit this, it's rare that I watch Fox news. Right. And when I do, I'm like, Oh my God, they're, they're, that's interesting. <laughs> I'll just say that you might have some folks listening. <laughs> so I was just like, oh my God, that, you know, if I believed everything they put on there, I think we were crazy too. Right. So, yeah. but, but, so they have to be able to touch and see, um, folks in reality and what we represent. And I think that they might be in for, um, what I would believe a, a pleasant surprise and that we can probably win some folks over with some, um, practical policies that actually would benefit them and their lives. So
0: well, of course we can. And to mm-hmm. anyone who keeps repeating this refrain that Ohio is a deep red state, I I just point to Senator Brown. Yeah. Uh, he he won not too long ago and he is mm-hmm. still popular. Uh, and if we can amplify that message and uh, if we can reach those parts of the state that you describe that that need a different message we can Mm -hmm. pull it off
1: we can't take them for granted we can't take them for granted and we can't just assume that that they've heard our actual message because if we haven't knocked on the door and introduced ourselves and talk policy then um then they don't know and people don't don't know what they don't know until they hear it. And so for me, even, um, in my race where again, the other candidate is described as being a fighter. And I'm like, well, just because I'm not on the news or just because, um, the work I've done hasn't made headlines. It doesn't make it any less valuable. In fact, my track record is a lot longer and I'm a champion. I'm not just a fighter because it's one thing to fight, but you have to be able to deliver. And I think, um, on the other side right now, this, um, the season of celebrity that has become the soup du jour. Everybody wants a little bit of taste of fame and wants to, uh, you know, have their name in headlights. It has really hindered us from getting some real work done. So we have to get back to the basics and, um, and the ground game and grassroots and really making sure that we're touching people, meeting them where they are. And I think once we get back to those things and not uh, being hyper-focused on again, the things that might get you a couple likes on social media or, may, or trying to go viral, but really focusing on people, then we have a better shot. And that's the formula of my friends. Uh, again, Tim Ryan and, and Senator Sherrod Brown, they've done it well and they've done it repeatedly. And it's a formula that we should all be um, following if we if we want to win.
0: Well, let's talk about that formula in your career with your long track record of public service. You were the first Black woman elected head of the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. First of all, congratulations. Second of all, that was 2017. I mean, that is kind of late, and it's also appalling that in Cuyahoga County, it took until 2017. Have you thought about the implications of that, or are you just charging ahead and leading with the gavel you've earned?
1: I think you know me. I just charge ahead. (laughs) Listen. You know, uh, I, we, we've got a windshield that's bigger than our rear view here, um, right? And so we have to look ahead. And um, and what I do applaud is just the people of Cuyahoga County um, for trusting me to come into that role and that position of um, leadership in its 200-year history is when I was elected. And so I, I'm humbled, appreciative, grateful, but I also recognize to whom much is given, much is required. And what I mean by much is responsibility because it is an unpaid position, <laughs> So it is a volunteer position. It is a labor of love, and so I guess you can call me a glutton for punishment. I don't know, but I really, um, I really do it for the love of the people and the work. Because at what I saw in the opportunity that was presented to me by Secretary Fudge, she actually tapped me on the shoulder and asked if I would consider. And she was kind and gracious enough to say, "It is, it is unpaid. So if you say no, I understand." <laughs> and so, um, but it took me about a month to um, come to the conclusion, like, yes, I'll actually do this and um, I'll throw my name in the in the hat, what do I have to lose? There's so much to gain in being able to empower people and help them to understand that the vote is the greatest equalizer that we have when it comes to this country, especially when it comes to power. Um, whether you're black, white, rich, poor, gay, straight, Democrat or Republican, GED to PhD, we all get one vote. And so the fact that so many states, um, including our very own, are working so hard to suppress the vote only amplifies it value to me. And so being able to convince folks who have felt marginalized or felt um, disenfranchised or feel like politics isn't working for them, it has been my mission even before um, coming into the chairpersonship of that to make sure that people all fully understand their political power. And that was why I was super excited to lead our state's largest Democratic County Party of the 88. And we are not the most populous. So it means a lot to me that we're able to deliver the most votes from the precinct to the presidency under my leadership.
0: A lot of the headwinds that we face, though, aren't just about messaging and, and mobilization. Some of them are structural in the way the system of gerrymandering is is tilted against Mm -hmm. Democrats. We have a state house that, as we speak, is trying to figure out how to uh, deny enfranchisement as much as they can. How do you think about that? And in trying to convince your constituents that their votes really do matter, how do you also maintain a sense of realism about the constant efforts to diminish the power of those
1: votes? Well, I think you said it. When, when I'm in the community and I'm talking about um, crossing paths with people, first and foremost, you've got to meet folks where they are. And you have to recognize that this is hard work and that those who, um, again, have been disenfranchised and when you see people that are working so hard to take away something, um, remind them that people don't try to take things away from you that don't have value. Right. And so that's one of the things that I try to convey to folks. And then the other thing is that um, I try to bring it down to the simplest, most everyday aspect of their lives, starting a conversation out sometimes with what's important to you and um, and seeing where the conversation takes me, because as a semi seasoned legislator, I can generally and about nine times out of 10 draw whatever is important to somebody back to politics, Even so, when I'm in classrooms, the the question I ask our students are, um, you know, what would you like to be? And the first thing they always say is rich. So, you know, that isn't a career, but what we do uh, tie our our wealth to are our taxes, how we make money, um, investment opportunities, how much you can make, how much you can charge. All of that is decided by somebody in government. And so that's why I try to make it something that they can stop and think and say, oh, my gosh, you know, this is really having an impact on my life. You know, um, with the, the stimulus checks that came out, many people were quick to provide their information so they could get a stimulus check, but too many were unwilling to do the same thing so we could be counted in the census. So helping people to understand the connections and the correlations, how we now have lost a seat because we didn't have enough people counted in the census, just bringing those lived examples that they can see, touch, and feel in their everyday life and how it closely is tied to politics and elected officials that represent them that they may not even know exist. One of the things that I um, was disappointed to learn when I came became party chair was how few people knew what our elected officials' roles were. And so I took it out of my own spare time to just create what I ended up calling a voter guide, where it was created in um, a nonpartisan fashion where it identified every office, including the president, um, although he wasn't on the midterm, but it included every office that was going to be on the midterm ballot. No names, just the office. So it went from president to um, U.S. senator, down to Congress, to governor, um, lieutenant governor, senator, state senator, state rep, secretary of state, auditor, attorney general, and I identified about three three or four things that were their key responsibilities so that people could know what they should expect from these individuals that we do an amazing job of telling them who to vote for, but not such a good job of telling them how um, they impact their everyday life.
0: Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found, and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So, five minute news is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily. I wrote something down that you just said, and uh, I'm going to ping my producer here to make this the hook for the top of the show. Uh, when you said that people don't try to take something away from you if it's not important, mm-hmm. I think that sums up the entire get-out-the-vote effort and the entire Democratic Party project going into 2022. Um, mm-hmm. our, our power is only there; it's only relevant if individuals uh, exercise it. That's right. I want to get a little bit of the the backstory. Because your passion about politics is just so obvious in hearing you talk about it. And your journey started uh, relatively young. But if I heard you right, I think you quoted one of my favorite New Testament passages, Luke twelve forty eight which says that from those to whom much has been given much will be mm-hmm. demanded is that part of your your motivation is there a faith tradition that propelled you into this what kickstarted your political career
1: Oh, my goodness. So yes, yes, and yes. All of the above. And what kickstarted my um, career was the desire to serve in Matthew 25. Right. So but for me, more specifically in my neighborhood at the time, it was 2011. I had been in my house for seven years. There's a theme coming seven years. I've been in my house. The community was starting to change a little bit. But what was happening in the new cycle was the earthquake tragedy that struck in Japan. And because I'm surrounded by seniors and retirees and they have had, um, We have this relationship where they've treated me like their very own and I have a heart for people. I wanted to know where would we go in the event of an emergency? And so I thought the best place to find that answer would be my local city council meeting. So I went, presented the question, got the answer, but something said, keep going so you can learn about what's happening in your neighborhood. Well, like many of our communities, things were good, but there was room for improvement. So rather than complain, I'm a person that believes in being the change that you want to see. And so I decided to run and (laughs) run for city council. And as I was introducing myself to my neighbors, uh, they were not shy about pointing out issues that have been going unaddressed. So they said, You know what can you do about this tree branch that needs to be trimmed? What can you do about these sewers that need to be cleaned? These potholes that need to be filled? So I said, well, let me see what I can do. And so because I continued going to the meetings, the administration took notice and they offered to help me. And so as people were identifying their problems, I was able to take that information back to our administration. And they said, "Um, we'll help you. And things started getting done. Tree branches started getting trimmed. Sewers started getting clean and potholes started to get filled and I wasn't even elected. So I'm feeling good, Ken. So now fast forward, election day comes, the polls close, and I was down by six votes. <laughs> <laughs> six <laughs> votes. I'm like, okay. So, you know, I'm like, okay. Um, my faith was really tested. I'm like, okay, God, I trust your infinite wisdom. This must not be for me. I was actually convinced I would never run for public office again. I was down, but not out, disappointed, but not devastated. I figured, okay. I'm getting things done. I don't need the title. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. But what I did not know is there were 23 provisional ballots in our race. There were three of us in the race. And I learned that I had won by seven votes 11 days later. So seven, there's that seven again. So um, that seven really changed the trajectory of my life, because as a child of faith, spiritually, seven represents Uh, perfection, completion, and God. And so that really uh, was like a sign to me that this journey for me was a divine intervention. And I really have made that the moral compass, the guiding force, and the foundation in this work that I purposely describe as public service, because I know I got here by his grace, mercy, and favor. And I've never lost sight of that. And I got here because I wanted to help people. So I've always had a heart for people. And I get to tell that story at least once a day on the campaign trail. But also prior to that, about one once a month so it has um, afforded me to remain focused I've never lost sight of why I'm doing this work and I and I got this from um, Noah he's a pastor in Lakewood he said because when you lose your why you will lose your way so I've never lost why I do this work and so it is a testimony of faith and I really equated this last primary um, as a David and Goliath situation, right? It was a, you know something that I anticipated winning. I say this humbly and respectfully, I've never entered a race with the expectation of doing anything other than winning and I didn't care what the odds look like. Um, I heard... God's voice is clear as I have heard yours on this show today and he told me in December you were going to be okay. Um, We, we, I don't know, we had, um, we knew we were going to have a candidate with national name recognition, lots of money Uh, and we weren't quite sure how we were going to do it but I was convinced we were going to be able to do it and um, I'm just glad my expectations and the outcome aligned, okay? So to God be the glory and the other thing, the other scripture that I hold fast to is um, faith without works is dead. It's not enough for us just to believe that we can get things done and that we're winners and that we're overcomers and we're conquerors. But we have to also be committed to doing the work. But at the end of the day, we trust his infinite wisdom. And um, win, lose, or draw, I would have accepted the outcome because I know my God doesn't make any mistakes.
0: Well, if that um, tally <laughs> of the first election isn't a reminder that every vote counts, yes, I don't know what is. Uh, yeah, you you've got to keep telling that story because yes. it's proof. It's proof. Um, you are stepping into some very significant shoes, and that is our our congresswoman, former congresswoman Marsha Fudge, who's now a cabinet secretary uh, in that role, of course. She couldn't endorse as a member Mm -hmm. of the Biden administration, but someone close to her did. How did you engineer the endorsement of Mrs. Fudge, uh, Congresswoman Fudge's mom?
1: Yes. So, yes, we um, we put our thinking caps on. and, And let me say this. We refer to her Mama Fudge. Marion Saffold is her name, but Mama Fudge is a, is a legend in her own right. She um, has been um, very active in the unions, a labor leader for quite some time. And so but she's she really the thing about this is that Marcia, Secretary Fudge, has known me um I lived in the city of Warrensville while she was mayor. And when she became the congressperson, um, she swore me in for my city council election. And although we weren't tight, her mom lived in my ward. And so, so her mom got to see me kind of really grow over the course of my elected office from um, city council to county council, party chair. And so she's witnessed and poured into my growth. The congresswoman and I became even closer in 2014 when I decided to run for County Council, and I I reached out to her following protocol as it was presented to me. Before you know, you seek a higher office or seek an office, you should seek the blessing of your um, congressperson, and I did that as instructed. And she said, if you if you have the support of Mayor Sellers, who's been a friend long before politics. I used to work in radio with um, Kim Sellers, who was his wife a while ago, and um, and so I'd known them for a very long time. And so it was a no-brainer for him. He was like, oh yeah, I got your back, and then. And um, and the congresswoman said, well, if Mayor Seller supports you, then you'll have my support. And so that race now, that race turned out a lot different than my first. So now instead of three people, there were six. Mm. (laughs) And so um, they were all more qualified, more experienced, more educated, more money. And I was the least of anything you could possibly be. But what ended up happening, we earned 48% of the vote in a six-person race. And I thought, oh my gosh, that that's pretty, pretty incredible until God blessed me with another primary where now it went from six to 12 folks. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and we ended up, I think, with 54% of the vote in that race. And so um, I attribute all that to hard work. But yes, Mama Saffold, Miss Fudge, as many people refer to her, Watched me grow. And so she was happy to do it. And we knew that we didn't want to um, put uh, Secretary Fudge in any more hot water because I don't know if you remember, she, um, one of her very first press conferences, I think it was her first press conference, a reporter asked about our friend Tim Ryan and um, about him running for Senate. And because she's so accustomed to, you know, being unabashedly and unashamed and proud with, about her party politics. She said, yeah, and I think we can win this thing. And so even just that, I think we can <laughs> win this thing. They yeah. accused her of violating the Hatch Act because of that. And so right. from that point on, we we were very cautious. And so um, we thought, everybody knows Mama Fudge. Let's make it happen. And, and Mama Fudge was all too willing and proud. And I couldn't have been more humbled and appreciative to have that uh, support. Because I think it also... Um, help some folks in our community, the Black community, distinguish who, you know, who they would want. Because historically, that seat has been Lou Stokes. Lou Stokes blessed Stephanie. Stephanie blessed Marsha. And then Marcia wasn't in a position to do it. And so it was kind of giving that blessing um, in a way, if you will, to people to let them know a signal who she would like to have succeeded her. So...
0: Well, it was a great ad and uh, <laughs> an even better politics. Um, well done. We end every episode of Burn the Boats with the same question. Uh, Chantel, what's the bravest decision you've ever been a part of?
1: Ooh, I think this, running running for, for public uh, office is a brave decision, and you know what that's like, and um It opens the window of opportunity to be a voice for the voiceless and to really make sure that people who do not have an opportunity to be heard can get a chance to have um, a platform And and that's what we use our platforms for um, as public servants to elevate the needs of those who are um, suffering or who are um, in a position that they cannot speak up or speak out, whether it's because they don't have that voice, they aren't in the room. We're in rooms. We have a voice. And so um, running for public office is a brave decision. I applaud anyone. Who has taken that step to do it because you you make the decision yourself but everyone around you family, um, friends carries the weight and shoulders that race and all that comes with it and so it's not only um, sometimes a brave a little bit selfish in a way because you don't always know some of the obstacles that you will run into or those challenges but um, when you have people especially those that come knocking at your door, send you Uh, mail pieces text or call and they're Democrats (laughs) embrace them (laughs) because we need more good folks doing this great work called public service so I would say that would be my bravest decision
0: well, I got to ask one more question then. Are uh-huh. you going to make uh, good trouble for us down in D.C.? You
1: better know it. <laughs> just like John Lewis, I plan to make a whole bunch of good trouble and I've already gotten started. So um, we, we don't take anything for granted. I want to remind folks, um, vote in every election. Again, um, we, have, uh, we have our general election is still on the horizon. Um, the biggest hurdle is already behind us, but I don't take anything for granted. So I just want to thank you giving me an opportunity to talk to your audience and hopefully they got a chance to know me a little bit better and got to uh, hear about some of the hard work that I've been doing and that we will have to continue to do. And you know, you're a friend, you're my brother, and I look forward to working with you, um, not just now, but long, long, long time in the future. Thank
0: you, Chantel. It's been great having you. Thanks again to Chantel for joining me. You can find her on Twitter at at M. Brown, and you can learn more about her house campaign at ChantelleBrown.com. If you enjoyed today's episode of Burn the Boats, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps other listeners find the show. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans' care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. Vote Vets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeLoya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcast. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.